0: Hello everyone, this is me in a hotel room. As you know, I'm traveling this week. I could not do a live stream. So I thought, let me take a break from proceedings and answer some of your questions. Do an Ask a Abhijit show that's recorded and release it as soon as I can. So that's what this is about. I'm gonna answer a few questions that you've asked me. And let's begin with question number one. It's by Anubhav Bharadwaj. I have read that most of the casualties in World War II happened on the Eastern Front. Around 80% of the Hitler Nazi army was killed. On the Eastern Front. So, who actually defeated the Nazis? Was it the Russians or the Allies of the US? Good question. So, as we know, the Russians bled a lot in the Second World War, and a lot of the fighting was actually primarily done by the Soviet Union, by the Russians. It was Stalin and his army that was at the forefront of much of the fighting against the Nazis. Of course, I'm not trying to Take away from the achievements of the allies in the United States, of course, as we know, the tide turned after the U.S. entered the fray in the Second World War. So they took care of liberating uh, Western Europe, France, etc. The invasion of Normandy, etc. And uh, in the in the Pacific theater as well, defeating Japan. We know how they did that. Uh, but when it comes to the continental uh, the continent of Europe, much of the fighting was done by the Soviets. I believe that at the end of the Second World War, once the war was over, I think about 80% of the people of Europe actually credited the USSR for saving them from the Nazis. But eventually what happened is that over time, the propaganda machine took over, the US propaganda machine took over, which, well, why would they not do it? And of course they had this very powerful tool called Hollywood. So because of their their actions, because of, because of uh, all the propaganda they put out, the kind of movies they made, it was made to appear as if it was the US that was the only primary actor in World War II and in defeating the uh, Nazis. So that is not quite the case. A significant uh, amount of fighting and winning was done by the USSR. I would say that the majority of the fighting in Europe was actually done by the USSR and it's the USSR that actually defeated uh, Nazi Germany. I mean, who was the, which was the first power to enter Berlin uh, when it is believed that uh, Adolf Hitler committed suicide. It was the Soviet Union. So that's what it is. History isn't exactly the way you taught it and the way the movies it. The truth is something different. Let's take another question. Uh, this is by Pragyan Chakrabarti. Was Uzbekistan, Kazakhstan, Tajikistan, etc. part of greater Iran? Uh, I don't have the map with me right now. (laughs) You know, I love the map. But if you talk about Greater Iran, Tajikistan would certainly be part of, excuse me, Greater Iran. The Iranians would even consider Western Afghanistan or maybe even the whole of Afghanistan to be part of Greater Iran. And certainly the Caucasus region. So all of that is what they consider to be part of Greater Iran. I would not say that Uzbekistan, Kazakhstan, etc., are part of Greater Iran because those are Turkic nations. But the truth is this that before Iran was even a thing all of this what is now called Central Asia was part of greater India. Uh, it was Uttarakuru and Madra. That's the two name, name, names for the, the entire large expanse of Central Asia. One was the name of the expanse above north of the Himalayas including Tibet and the Tarim river region present-day so-called Xinjiang, which is currently occupied by China. And of course, the uh, Western regions of Central Asia between present-day Xinjiang and Eastern Europe, all of that also. So all of that was Indianized. There were multiple waves of migration out of India thousands of years before today. Many of these waves have been recorded in ancient Vedic literature. So even before Iran or Persia was a thing, the entirety of Central Asia was Indic in nature. There were kingdoms and dynasties that uh, originated out of India. And what we see today is not reflective. The the demographic makeup of Central Asia today is very different. It's because of what happened in the past 1000 years. Uh, The Turks conquered Central Asia. There were terrible massacres and there was essentially a population replacement event and the present-day people of Central Asia are kind of a combination, you know, a mixture, an ethnic admixture of the old Scythian and Indic populations and the Turks. The majority of the, well, you could say, contribution, genetic contribution would be Turkic. So that's what happened. So yes, some parts of this are considered to be part of Greater Iran, but before Iran was even a thing it was all part of greater India. So that's the answer. Now let's take another question. This is by Ishan Sood. Is Elon Musk's move of buying Twitter, does it indicate his plans to explicitly support Republicans and overthrow Democrats in the next election? What will be the geopolitical implications? Well, Elon Musk is making curious statements on social media, on Twitter. Firstly, his acquisition of Twitter is not yet a done deal. He seems to be, he seems to be showing some amount of buyer's remorse or regret. I mean, it's not yet officially uh, accomplished. And what, it seems, what he seems to have discovered is that a significant pro- proportion of the users on Twitter, the accounts on Twitter could be bought accounts, which means that they don't really represent real human beings. These are accounts that people have created that certain people or powers or whatever have created in order to, Uh, to manipulate public opinion and and achieve a variety of objectives. So the figure that Elon Musk is talking about is that anything between 20% and maybe even 70-80% of the users on Twitter are not actual real human beings. So that's what he's talking about. So that is the kind of rough waters the deal has run into. The Twitter uh, board is saying nothing doing. We're gonna go ahead with this thing and Elon Musk will have to pay the actual uh, 44 billion dollar amount and he cannot go back on his valuation and so on and so forth. So there's a back and forth going on right now. Now well, the thing is that Elon Musk has recently uh, indicated his support for the Republican Party uh, on Twitter. He said that he always voted Democrat but now the things are such that he is more inclined to or he has decided to vote Republican. So what does this indicate? See, Elon Musk is one of the most influential people on the planet. Whatever he says has real world implications and repercussions. If he says, uh, if he if he supports a certain company or stock, that stock goes up in valuation. If he disparages a certain company, that stock plummets, the same goes with cryptocurrencies, Bitcoin, et cetera. And now if he is talking about uh, the Republicans and saying he'll vote Republican, it's possible that there could be a sway in his supporters who may have been Democrats, who may possibly want to think about voting Republican next time. So it is a politically loaded and charged statement that he has made and it has real-world implications. Uh, What is the question? Does it mean that he wants to overthrow the Democrats in the next election? I don't think that he actually wants to overthrow the Democrats or any such thing. He's simply indicating his dissatisfaction and disillusionment with the Democratic Party and that's what he's, that's what he's expressing, I believe. Maybe he doesn't, or maybe he does, he's a very smart person, maybe he does realize what uh, what in real world repercussions his states, statements have. Maybe it's a pressure tactic to get uh, the Democratic Party, which is currently in power to to do things better or what. So I'm not quite sure what his, what his intentions are. I don't think it's an attempt to overthrow any party, but it's certainly, very influential. Now, the bigger picture is that Elon Musk has gotten embroiled in this entire Twitter matter. He has, well, essentially gone ahead with this acquisition of Twitter. The question is, what is he trying to do? The guy has very big, very big dreams and, and a very big vision. He wants to take humanity to Mars. He wants to, uh, He wants the world to move to electric power instead of fossil fuels. And he's doing it via his, uh, solar. I mean, electric power vehicles and all that, which does have a, have a certain amount of uh, ecological footprint because of the of the batteries. But he's go, he's making moves in the right direction. He's also he's got this solar power company and he's got the boarding company as well. So he has enormous ambitions and he's got a very big vision. The question is, what is he trying to achieve by by also fighting by opening one more front and fighting one more battle, which is the very political, very visible battle over Twitter? I, I I understand that he believes in free speech. He's a free speech absolutist, but is it advisable, is it is it wise for one person to fight so many battles? The dreams that he has are already enormous dreams. It would be a miracle if he can achieve all of them. He could very well be on the path of of, of doing that, eventually in the next 10 or so years, getting people on Mars and all that, it's possible. He he already has the technology. My question is, why is he trying to fight so many battles, especially these these, uh, political battles? So I'm not quite sure what he's trying to do. Does this have geopolitical, uh, does it have a geopolitical angle? See, SpaceX is at the forefront of space exploration and space, Uh, exploration technology, which means it is a very valuable asset in the U.S. geopolitical arsenal. If the U.S. is to to conquer outer space and beat all the other nations in doing it, uh, SpaceX will play a very big role in that. And uh, uh, SpaceX also launches multiple variety of secret satellites, military satellites that have uh, military applications, so SpaceX is very much part of the jigsaw puzzle in geopolitics and Elon Musk is very much part of that because he is the guy who owns SpaceX. So there is always a geopolitical angle to whatever Elon Musk does, whether he likes it or not, it's there. So clearly this Twitter battle also could have some kind of geopolitical angle. I'm not sure if he if he is doing it uh, on his own volition or, or what the thing is, but clearly Twitter is is an instrument that influences a significant population, percentage of the world's population. World leaders use it and uh, your data is, is essentially open. It's, it's open to the US government, whether you know it or not, whether you like it or not. So it is a very powerful geo, geopolitical tool. And uh, so yeah, I'm, I'm not sure what Elon Musk is trying to do. So that's something that uh, I am not able to decipher thus far, but it is, I find it strange that somebody with such enormous ambitions is trying to fight so many battles. And some of them could actually be considered or, or characterized as somewhat petty battles. So I'm not sure if his ego has got to his head or if this is a very well calculated, very well thought out strategy. Uh, time will tell us, but right now it's, I find it kind of puzzling. Okay, next question. This is by learning and recreation. Is it possible for an IAS officer to bring change to in, in India uh, from the perspective of fake history and bring out truth in books? See, the thing is this, IAS officers, as long as they are active in their duty, they are essentially tools of the state. They are not expected or even supposed to have a leadership position in society. They are simply of the government. The government tells them what to do and they carry out the government's wishes. That's all it is. They do not decide grant strategy or grant policy. They will be told what to do and they will decide how to carry that out and how to achieve those objectives or whatever the demands of the politicians are. That's what IAS officers do. As such they have no role in changing the content of history textbooks or bringing out any, bringing about any revolution in society, or uh, bringing out out truth in books. That is a political decision. If the syllabus is going to be changed, if the books are going to be uh, decontaminated of all the fake history and distortions, it's not going to happen at the IAS level, it's going to happen at the political level. Some political leader of this country is going to have to show the courage and the vision and the gumption to to see this through, to, to first of all decide to do this and then see this through. So once the decision is made, maybe IAS officers will be involved in implementing the decision and ensuring it is done properly. And it still remains to be seen if they will actually do it properly, because well, that's a whole different story. So this leadership has to come from the politicians. It has to come at the political level, not at the IAS level. IAS officers are simply bureaucrats. They are. I am sure there are many fantastic people among the IAS cadre. I am sure there are. Very good people, very nationalistic, patriotic people and all that. But their function is to carry out orders and not provide any leadership. If an IAS officer starts taking decisions that the politicians have not approved, that is actually a big problem. They're not supposed to do that. So we should not expect any such change coming in from the IAS level. That is always going to be a political decision. This is a question by Abhijit. Abhijit with the H at the end. The question is, is it possible to create an empire in, in the modern day? How were empires formed in the first place? How do people know about it? If it is formed, do people fall for it or support it? So the question is, how do you form an empire in the modern day? Is an empire even possible in the 21st century? Well, you already have an empire in the 21st century. There is one single superpower in the world that controls most of the world's uh, economy, policy, decision-making, all the institutions of the world, like the World Bank, IMF, uh, IMF, etc., And it essentially has the ability to intervene in any part of the world militarily at 30 to 60 minutes notice. That is the United States. We call it a superpower, but it's actually an empire. It has military bases all across the world in a very large number of countries. There are certain countries where it has permanent military bases, for decades, it has had this military bases for decades. South Korea is an example, Japan is an example, Germany is an example. It has nuclear weapons on the soil of other countries. So this is an empire. We, we call it a superpower these days, which is the acceptable terminology, but it is nothing but an empire. So an empire is very much possible today. And all these countries, which are supposedly free democratic countries like the UK, like all of the EU nations, the NATO members, like, like Japan, like South Korea, Australia, New Zealand, these are supposedly free democratic countries with for, with their own foreign policies. And all. These are actually US-fasal states. Their foreign policy is essentially dictated by the US and all of their, uh, well, whatever happens there, it happens under US oversight, more or less, whether you realize it or not. So we have an empire in the modern day. It's the US empire, which is a continuation of the British empire. What happened is that the capital city, like I've spoken before, the the Focal point of the British Empire was London. All we have to do is to reframe that as the Anglo-Saxon Empire, the English-speaking Empire, the Anglophone Empire or the Anglo-Saxon Empire. All that happened is that the headquarters moved from London to Washington DC. That's all that happened. Everything else is the same. So we have an empire today. Uh, How do empires form? How are they created? Uh, All you have to do is look up how the Roman Empire came into existence, how the Gupta Empire came into existence, how the Mauryan Empire, how the Kushan Empire, how the Chola Empire came into existence. Usually it is through military conquest. That's what usually happens. Uh, When it comes to the Roman Empire, it was all about military expansion, relentless military expansion. When it it comes to the uh, British Empire, it was all about relentless military expansion and colonization and, and destruction of the colonized lands and so on. So that is a pattern that you see over and over again. When it comes to Indian empires, it's always, Again, been about military expansion, but it has not been about colonization. So the Cholas conquered the entirety of Southeast Asia, more or less. There was no colonization and extraction of resources from there. So that is something Indians or or the Dharmic people did not ever do. But it's always about military expansion. So if a new empire is to emerge, in let's say the 21st century, which is different from the Anglo- Anglo-Saxon empire, it is obviously going to be. Through military conquest. Now in the 21st century military doesn't necessarily mean kinetic conquest. It could be done through cyber conquest. That is also a possibility. So as technology evolves, the definition of conquest may change and you may not have human uh, soldiers involved in that and not much kinetic action but you may still have uh, a conquest that takes place. So, so that's how empires are formed. Uh, will people fall for it or support it. I mean, will people oppose it or support it? Who opposes the Anglo-Saxon Empire? Very few people. Very few people are aware of it. In the future, if a new empire does rise, it could be termed in the appropriate manner. Instead of calling it an empire, we'll call it, it's a new superpower that rose, And then people are okay with that. Words are all that, that that's required to, to set people's minds at ease. If you you may do the worst kind of <coughs> actions, but if you couch it in the right terminology, it's all acceptable. So uh, public opinion is actually quite easy to manipulate because of the power of, of a technology. So yeah, it's, it would be very much possible for people to, to, for, to, in, to make people accept it and see it as something good. And it, a new empire may not necessarily be something bad. So it all depends on who is creating the new empire and what means are they using and what are their policies. Okay. Next question is by Kiran Raj. What is Marxism? Is it bad? So Marxism is an ideology. You could uh, you could arrange a week long seminar about Marxism, eight hours per day, uh, eight hours per day for seven days, that sort of thing, in order to describe what Marxism is and go, in, go into detail of, about what it is. I mean, you bring a bunch of Marxist academics together, they're going to go on for hours and days and weeks about what Marxism is, but From a non-Marxist perspective, what is Marxism? It's an ideology. It's a political viewpoint, it's a a kind of worldview. And instead of going into what the characteristics are and what it says and what kind of world it envisages, we can take a different approach and look at the real world consequences of Marxism. We've had Marxism in existence for about a century and a half. In the past 100 or so years, you've had Marxist governments coming to power and the Marxist takeovers of countries. And what you see, the real world effect of Marxism is that Marxism, and based on that, you can characterize Marxism thusly. Marxism is a socio political toolkit whose only objective is to concentrate all power and resources in the hands of a very small number of people, which is typically the Politburo of the local communist party. So all of the power, all of the, uh, all of the, wealth etc is eventually concentrated in the hands of a very small group of people they are the ones who hold all the power they call it the dictatorship of the proletariat or whatever and they said that we represent the people but there's never any there's never been any democracy in marxism so that is what marxism is i'm not saying it is bad or good that's what the world has seen that's what the pattern has been in the past 100 years it's always the same thing after a so-called Marxist revolution, eventually after this dust settled down, settles down, what we find is that all of this power and all of the uh, assets of the country and all of the wealth of the country eventually ends up in the possession of a very small group of people. That's what always happens. Now, is it bad? Is it good? I mean, if the group of people who acquires all of this wealth and power has good intentions, then it could actually transform society in a good way. But it's never happened thus far, and what the Marxists say is that you know they have never implemented Marxism properly. For the past hundred years, they've done it again and again, but they've never implemented it properly. So bring me to power, and I, and I will show you what real Marxism is. So that's that's the refrain that you hear constantly from Marxist thinkers and advocates. But it's never ever worked out like that, and there is no guarantee that the next iteration of Marxism is also going to produce good results. Is is ever going to produce good results? But Clearly, it's the kind of thing, it's the kind of social political toolkit that ends up concentrating all the wealth and the power in a very small group of people. In case a good group of people is able to use this toolkit and acquire the power, then they may be able to use it for the right purposes. So there are some people who call themselves proponents of Dharmic Marxism. Well, I wish them all the best and all the luck, and if they are able to come to power, let's see how Dharmic they end up being, because you know, you may be the best person in the world. But when you acquire that amount of power and wealth, usually it goes to your head. And uh, yeah, the results are never that good. There is a scene in the Lord of the Rings in, the, in which there is this great wizard called, called Gandalf. Gandalf, And the, the, the protagonist, Frodo, offers the great ring, the one ring to Gandalf. Please take it, I cannot, It's too. it's too great for me. It's too big of a burden for me. But Gandalf, you take it. And Gandalf says, I dare not take it. Through me, it would wield a power too great and too terrible to behold. So that's the kind of thing. You know, you need to know what wealth and power can do to you and when you, so so, so that's, a, I think that's what Marxism does. Possibly many of these Marxists have good ideas and have good intentions, but when they actually get all the power and the wealth, uh, they may end up using it in the wrong way. So that's what the world has always seen. Next question, uh, the question is, Please explain why the Harappans buried the dead while we burned them. We is in Hindus. Also, they lived in brick-made houses while we had huts. How to counter the, the, the argument of Aryan invasion? Does it indicate we are Aryans so we follow different methods? Okay, I'm going to answer the question about the burials. All the other stuff I've answered multiple times. Okay, so yes, we find burials in the Sindhu region from the Harappan period of our civilization. Right, that's what we, we call it the Harappan phase or the Indus Valley phase or the Saraswati Sindhu phase of India's civilization. And we find burials there, we find cemeteries in some places where, where individuals have been buried. Do you know that even today in, in Hinduism, there is burial? Most people they the dead, yes. But certain individuals are buried. There are certain communities like the Lingayats, I believe, who practice burial instead of cremation. And when it comes to great, personalities like saints, essentially, who die or who, who leave the mortal coil, so to say, they are buried, it's called Samadhi. You go to places like Sumnath, etc. like uh, what's the place, Vainaval, Prabha, Spartan, you will find lots and lots of these Samadhis of great Hindu saints. So these are burials. You can call it a Samadhi, you can call it whatever you want. It is a burial. So uh, imagine this scenario that all the individuals you find buried in these cemeteries in the saptasindhu region from that phase of our civilization maybe there were saints who were buried um, in in the form of samadhi of course at the form of when you when someone goes into samadhi typically or or sometimes they will be put in the padmasana pose sitting pose but it's also possible that you may be uh, placed into samadhi while lying down as if it's a burial so it is there is a possibility we have to uh, take seriously, and there is no guarantee that everybody was buried, we find a few burials, but we also find pots with cremated ashes and, and burnt bones inside, which indicates that there were cremations as well. The question is, what was prevalent? Were cremations prevalent or were burials prevalent? We still don't have the answer. So once we do a lot more archeology, span we will be able to answer this question. As of now, it is I can say that it is in no way uh, dissonant with what Hinduism is. In Hinduism, you have all kinds of practices, including burials. So that does not say in any way that this is not Hinduism and this is not uh, whatever, Aryan, Dravidian, whatever the myth is. This is very much part of Indian civilization. There is no doubt whatsoever about that. The next question is, can India get her historical lands back without any global backlash? Is there a way? This question is in context with the Russia-Ukraine war as Russia is now completely alienated or isolated by Western countries economically because of its actions in Ukraine. So is there a way for India to take back her lands, which were historically part of India without uh, inviting a global backlash? As of today, there is no such way as of today, because India is not one of the top two powers in the world, right, militarily and economically. Today, if you do anything that goes against the US vision of the world order, you're gonna face severe consequences, and that's what we are seeing with the Russia-Ukraine situation. The, Russia, the Russian economy has been completely cut off, and the Russians are taking measures to to alleviate the problem. But that's what the Americans have attempted to do. They've attempted to destroy the Russian economy, right, by imposing the entire bucket load of sanctions on Russia. If India were to invade Pakistan today, or 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 some other country, let's say hypothetically, right? there will be a similar situation. That's what they did with Iraq as well. They first let Saddam Hussein believe that it was okay for him to invade Kuwait. And when he went ahead with the invasion, he was destroyed, his country was destroyed. That's what happened. We are seeing something similar with Russia today. Of course, Russia is a whole different beast. It's not a tiny nation, a reasonably weak nation like Iraq used to be. It's a superpower in its own right, especially because of its nuclear arsenal. Now, if India were to do such a thing, India would face the same situation. There would certainly be a whole slew of economic sanctions imposed upon India and maybe there could be some military action as well if the U.S. so desires. The U.S. is way, way, way more powerful than India is as of today. right? So as of today, there is no way for India to reclaim its historical lands through military action without inviting a global backlash, especially from the so-called uh, first world, which is the U.S. Empire. So what does India need to do? Well, India needs to build up its economy, its its economic strength, its military strength. India needs to reach at least the $10 trillion mark from from, from the GDP perspective. That's the first thing India needs to do. It's a long-term game. It's a long-term game. We need to be patient, right? So when should India go ahead and reclaim its territories? Well, when there is no impediment to doing so. I've said this in the past, I'll say it again. There is this movie, this Marvel Universe movie in in which there is this character called Thanos. He says, I am inevitable. Well, India should do this when India becomes inevitable. So the real trick is to become inevitable. You become inevitable when you are the biggest shark in the sea. So that's what needs to happen. As of today, India should not think about uh, reacquiring lost territories. What India should think about is solving the Pakistan issue or certain other issues. And there are multiple creative ways of doing it geopolitically, so that is step number one. Reacquiring those territories is a long-term is a long-term uh, project, because culturally those territories are completely different from Indian culture. I mean, we, it's culturally it's become something else entirely, right? So uh, it's a long-term project. It's not going to happen overnight. It's gonna, not going to happen in the next five years or ten years, but it will happen eventually when India becomes inevitable. So all of you need to work together to make India inevitable. The next question is by Dungar Singh Tohan. Scientists have for the first time grown seeds on lunar soil collected by NASA. What are your views on this? Will it be possible in the future to grow plants at the moon? Yes, I uh, read the news recently that scientists have uh, grown plants on lunar soil. It seems that the the plants don't necessarily thrive or prosper on lunar soil, but they are able to, to grow. On lunar soil. They don't love it, but they're able to survive on it, which is excellent because in the future if we want to have lo- uh, human colonies on the moon then we will need to, if, if it's going to be a long-term colony, if it's going to be a five-year colony, we don't want to uh, uh, get supplies every three months from, from, from the earth. It's very expensive to send a rocket all the way to the moon. So instead of that if we can uh, create a greenhouse kind of structure on the moon with uh, atmosphere with air and use the local lunar soil in which to grow plants. That would solve a whole lot of problems, right? So we could actually, if this works, create entire farms on the moon and we could grow a variety of uh, food crops. So it's a very good thing. Uh, it's, It's very promising. Uh, and if you can uh, perhaps treat the soil in some manner and make it more fertile or, or more conducive to making plants happier, that would be great. But the initial news is very promising. It's, it's, very, it's, very, it's very good. So it means that we will be able to solve this very major issue once we are able to have long term, maybe even permanent settlements on the moon. We'll be able to grow, grow plants there locally. And when it comes to the lunar gravity, I think plants will definitely grow in a different way. Or at least they'll be able to survive and let's see how the seeds and, uh, and all that comes out but it's, it's, a, uh, it's a very promising and uh, great development in my opinion. Okay the next question is by Priyanch Soni. Why did chess emerge quite late in India even though the origin of chess was from India itself? I'm not sure what you mean by chess emerged late in India uh, I don't know what Wikipedia says or, or Encyclopedia Britannica or whatever says about chess in India. What we know is the evidence that we have and the oldest evidence of chess in India, oldest known evidence for chess in India is this chess board with chess pieces, which is from, I think it was, it was found in Lothal, which is a Sarasvati Hindu era site, archeological site. It's in Gujarat in Western India. Right? So that's where uh, this chess board was found. It's a chess board and some chess pieces have also been found. And I would imagine, I don't have the exact dates with me right now, right here, but I, that era was about 5,000 years before today. So that that, uh, that chess, uh, chess set would most likely date between 6,000 and 4,000 years before today, which is quite old. And it already tells you, it tells you that chess was already an, a thing. It was a very well developed game with a proper chess board and chess pieces and, and the same most likely similar rules to what we have today, so it demonstrates actually that chess is very old. Uh, if if this chess uh, set is from five thousand years before today, most likely chess must have developed at least a thousand years before that. So it tells you how old chess is, and obviously chess emerged out of India. I'm not sure what Wikipedia says. Maybe they say chess came from somewhere else. We don't care about that. We have the evidence. It shows that chess was being played 5,000 or so years before today in India itself. And similar situations uh, occur with other sports. For instance, the sport of polo comes to my mind. Now, I remember reading in Wikipedia three or four years ago that uh, the origin of polo seems to be from Iran, Persia. That's not the case. Polo originates, as far as I know, in Eastern India, in the far east of India, in Manipur. The world's oldest polo ground is in Imphal which is the capital of Manipur, it's at least 2000 years old, this oldest polo ground. And uh, it's the British who came to India and who call, who, who eventually uh, occupied Manipur in beginning 1891. And they observed this sport that the, the people of Manipur would play. And they copied it. And for some reason, they called it polo. And they also started playing it. And that's how the, the, the sport uh, spread throughout Europe and the English speaking world and all that. It's possible that the Persians may also have been playing a similar game, but clearly the origin is in India. The same goes for for like I said, Jess and maybe even for kabaddi. The Iranians are also quite good at playing kabaddi. There are so many similarities in this in, in between India and Persia, and obviously India is the older civilization. Persia is about three three and a half, maybe four thousand years old, but it came out of India. The oldest the the Founders of Persia were Indians who migrated eastward. So uh, to summarize, chess is a very ancient game which came out of India. So is Polo, so is kabaddi. and so is like, I would say games like Cocoa, etc., uh, which I don't know so much about. But for chess and Polo, I'm certain India is the place of origin. Okay, next question. It's by Krishna. Can you give a brief summary of the Kaczynski Manifesto? Kaczynski Manifesto. So the Kaczynski Manifesto is called the Industrial Revolution. And I don't quite remember the title of the manifesto. So, what is this Kaczynski Manifesto? Who is Ted Kaczynski? Ted Kaczynski is a genius-level mathematician. He is also a convicted terrorist, right? So I'm not sure if it was the 50s or the 60s that he went to howard i think I even he went to one of the ivy league universities he did a phd he was very young and uh, he published a number of papers in pure mathematics he's a high high quality mathematician and then for some reason uh he started uh, displaying some anti-social tendencies that's what they say and he isolated himself he went into the he cut 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 himself off from most human contact. He acquired a cabin in the woods, a secluded cabin in a secluded part of the woods and uh, he would have, he did not have any internet. Obviously the, those there was no internet, no electricity, no modern amenities and that's where he, where he would live for months on end. And uh, he turned out to be the person who, who was known as the Una bomber. So there was this person in the US who would mail would send parcels containing bombs to various people. And a number of people died because of that. some people lost their fingers and eye or whatever, that sort of thing. Some people actually died. So he would mail out these bombs, these pipe bombs or cylinder bombs in parcels. And when the person would open it, that person would be exposed to the explosion. So that's what he did. And he wrote a lengthy manifesto and uh, mailed it to some prominent newspapers in the U.S. and uh, it was published. It's known as the Unabomber Manifesto, and eventually this this guy was uh, he was tracked down and apprehended, and he's serving a life sentence in prison. So it looks like he will spend the rest of his days in prison. He's already quite elderly, so so that's what it is. So what was this manifesto? It was a manifesto railing against the modernization and industrialization of society. So I haven't read the thing in detail, but that's what I can tell you about it. And the thing is this, I mean, I have read parts of it a long time ago, so I don't remember the specifics, but what I can tell you is that it makes a whole lot of sense what he wrote. But what he did doesn't make sense. I mean, what was the point of killing random people? Maybe he, it was not random, maybe he selected people uh, based on certain specific uh, traits or whatever, but, what was the point of killing innocent people who he did not even really know in person? Uh, maybe he was sending out a message or whatever. But his reaction to what he saw as this terrible direction the society is taking in, his reaction was not right. Obviously, it's not right to indulge in terrorist activities or, or murder people. But if you read the manifesto, it makes a whole lot of sense. It's as relevant in the 21st century in, in 2022 as it was when it was written. So. If you are curious, read it. It's not going to turn you into a terrorist, but be aware that the person who wrote it ended up doing these terrible terrible acts. So that is the the Unabomber Manifesto or the Kaczynski Manifesto. I don't remember the specifics. So you can look it up. It's It's available online. Trishna Nath says, Is the world really dying? The world is never dying. The world is always in a, in a state of flux. It's always changing. And change also certainly does manifest itself in the form of death. Death and then uh, organisms die, people die, and then there is rebirth in, in a variety of ways. New organisms emerge. New people are born. Uh, species come and go. The dinosaurs were a thing. They are no longer a thing. Of course, they're still out there. I can hear them sometimes, you know. But uh, the non-avian dinosaurs died. Lots of species came and went, and some many of them did not even leave a trace in the fossil record. Especially the species that were soft-bodied species, without 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 bones, you know. So is the world dying? The world is changing. I'm sure you're asking this in the context of climate change and the current scenario, the situation, in the environment where you have. We are in the middle of an ongoing extinction event. None of the extinction events that happened in the past, mass mass extinctions happened overnight. Even the uh, 66 million years before today, uh, extinction event, event, the Cretaceous Paleogene extinction event did not happen overnight, over 24 hours. It it took a certain period of time, maybe 10 years or so. There was this uh, impact event, the Chicxulub, asteroid of comment, the impact and also the Deccan traps volcanism which both contributed to what happened. But there have been many mass extinctions and these mass extinctions they happen over time. It doesn't happen in a weekend. So we are currently seeing an accelerated extinction of a variety of species. So that's happening and much of that is caused by human meddling by human meddling in the environment, by the by the changes we have brought into the environment. By the carbon, we have released into the atmosphere. We are at the record highs of carbon, carbon particles in the atmosphere. We are dumping untold amounts of garbage, sewage, plastic into the oceans. We have uh, we have deforested much of the planet it's still going on. 99% of the biomass, non-human biomass on the surface of the planet is agricultural animals. A hundred years ago, 99% of the non-human biomass was wild animals. So we have brought about so many changes and this is going to have consequences. Now, whether it's going to be good in the long run or not, remains to be seen. Obviously there's going to be detrimental, deleterious effects for us, for our descendants and for the other species. Maybe it is certainly possible that there could be a new mass extinction. There is certainly a mass extinction going on. Many non-human species are going extinct at at an alarming rate but it could end up destroying us as a species as well. It's possible that in the next three to 400, maybe 500 years, humanity itself may go extinct. It is a possibility. Does it mean the world is dying? No, the world will do just fine. No matter what we do, the world will survive. The world will evolve. There have been times when 95% of the species of the planet died out for whatever reason, and yet the planet bounced back. New species emerged. The process took tens of millions of years, but it happens. So from our perspective, tens of millions of years is unimaginable. We can put the figure down, write it down, but it doesn't really make sense to us, that, that number of years. So we have been around for a fraction of that time, 300,000 or so years as a species, right? So it's possible we may go extinct, but the world will just will do just fine. New species will eventually emerge, whatever destruction or or degradation we are causing to the environment will eventually uh. We become part of the planet. The environment will heal itself with or without us and it will go on. So the world is not dying. It is changing and we are contributing significantly to the change. Some people say that climate change is not a thing. That's not true. Climate has always been changing. But right now, some of the contribution to climate change or a non-trivial contribution to the current climate change is coming from us. It's not coming from us in India. It's something that's been going on since the Industrial Revolution. Two 300 years or so before today. It's all been done. If you want to, a proportion blame, it's been done by the West. And now they're trying to put the blame on India and China and the developing world, which is not going to wash us. But that's a different issue. So the, the answer is the world is not dying. The world is changing. And it's going to do just fine with or without us. We are just a small, very small interlude or small chapter in the history of our planet. The next question is by Saurabh is ancient greek literature totally reliable especially in the indian context as as we know everyone glorifies their own culture rather than other cultures okay so greek uh, ancient greek literature is important in the indian context and the reason why greek literature and tibetan literature and chinese literature and persian literature arabic literature etc why is it important it's because we have lost our own writings our ancestors compiled voluminous collections of books and writings. These were stored in the great libraries in our great universities. And these were all wiped out about a thousand years ago. Everything was burned down. So we lost the written records of our history. And because of this enormous, massive loss, we are now forced to rely on foreign accounts of India, written by foreign travelers to India. People like Xuanzang, Fahian from China. uh, uh, Who was it? Uh, various, Various Greek travelers, uh, there are a couple of Scythian accounts as well and uh, various other ac- accounts like that, foreign foreign uh, accounts of India. So the question is about uh, Greek accounts of 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 India, ancient India. So one of the examples is the Periplus of the Eritrean Sea. I don't remember who the author is, but it talks about the geography of India and who the uh, kings are. It, it, uh, it mentions a king called Nambanus, which is clearly the great Indo-Scythian Mahakshatrap Nahapana. And so on. It talks about the geography of India, the major cities, some rivers and so on. Then there is obviously the Indica of Megasthenes. Megasthenes was a Greek ambassador to India. He was an ambassador in the Mauryan court. And he wrote a very interesting account of India. It was written from a tactical, military kind of perspective. You know, facts and figures, facts and figures, facts and figures, that sort of thing. And now this account is called Indica, the Indica that account is lost. We don't have the original uh, writing at all anymore, but we know to some extent what was written in Indica because it has been referenced and mentioned and in some cases uh, reproduced to some extent in other writings, Uh, in the writings of other Greek uh, writers or scholars or historians who mentioned what Megasthenes wrote and uh, they have kind of uh, repeated that to some extent. So that's why we know some portion of what he wrote. Now, clearly, these are foreign accounts. They will have a foreign perspective, whether it's a Greek perspective or a Chinese perspective or a Scythian perspective or or an Arabic perspective or Persian perspective or later European perspective. We know how badly the Europeans distorted Indian culture and history. It's something we are still coping with. Now, at least we are are able to understand the extent of, of how badly they mischaracterized Indian culture and distorted Indian history, they did did, did that on purpose because they had a certain objective, right? To to re-engineer Indian society and all, which is still a work in progress. Now the Greeks may not have had that sort of thing, but they would certainly have their own foreign perspective. So the same goes with the Chinese and other, other accounts. So you can never rely on any of these accounts entirely. You cannot take them at face value, but what we can do is we take a big picture perspective and look at all the accounts of all these different foreigners who came from different parts of the world and then try to draw out the patterns that that emerge out of that. So certain patterns will repeat themselves in the accounts of all of these foreigners. And that is something you can trust. If all of them agree about certain things, those things at least we can trust. So that's why you need a big picture perspective. You cannot just rely on one person's account of India because it's gonna reflect that person's uh, perspective and possibly even biases, or or their ignorance also of local customs, so, so they may see it in a different way, and uh, that may not be entirely correct. So you have to take a big picture perspective. That's why you need books that uh, you need uh, books that could possibly offer a big picture perspective from the three sixty degree view. So you can't rely on one on any one account, but when certain patterns emerge from all the accounts, that certainly is something you can rely on. Okay, I think I've run out of questions uh, for now. Uh, So I'm going to stop it here. Just a brief uh, recorded session of Ask Abhijit. As always, thank you for watching. And this weekend, I will do it live. Until then, take care. And thank you very much for watching and keep asking your questions. Bye.